I was trying to think about it. I don't know how long ago it was that we said we were going to start talking about this subject of associationalism. Uh, probably was in the fall, honestly. So we just, yeah, we just don't move quick, which is fine. No, no problem with that. Uh, this is something that if, if we want to do anything different or anything, we, would, we want to be informed on it. And again, we don't do anything quick, so there's no rush on anything. We can let this marinate and, uh, and decide. You know, There's no guarantee that we're going to do anything. If we do anything differently or enhance what we do already, whatever it is, it'll be the church that decides that. So it, it'll be you. It's, it's the voice of the people. Before we get started, let me give a few resources that um, I think are helpful. First is there is a series of little booklets called Recovering Our Confessional Heritage. Um, these are put out by um, the Institute of Reform Baptist Studies is involved with them, but Dr. Renahan wrote one on associational churchmanship covering mostly the idea from the confession. Uh, we have two booklets that are actually out there that's where I found them anyway. Uh, Benefits of Belonging to an Association of Churches and A Tale of Two Associations, which is about two different associations in England, I believe. Um, I don't know that there's more copies of them, but they were out there, at least at one point. Um, this is a book called Denominations or Associations. These are essays on Reformed Baptist associations, and it's a series of essays, and it's on Reformed Baptist associations. So it's all in the title. Um, bunch of different guys, different subjects about associations, and easy read. And then this is Dr. Rinehan's, I think it's his PhD thesis that he wrote. It's called Edification and Beauty, um, the Practical Ecclesiology of the English Particular Baptist from 1675 to 1705. Super exciting stuff. Honestly, it is actually very interesting. So this is basically covering how the Particular Baptist are forefathers, the guys that wrote the confession and uh, adhered to the confession, how they did church. And it's just covering it historically. Not necessarily making arguments more like, this is what they did. And that's how they, this is how they thought about it. So those books are um, just a few. Uh, and there's some articles as well. Uh, but if you wanted something shorter, I've got some articles as well. Um, some with opposing viewpoints or contrarian or different perspectives on it anyway. And we'll, we'll try and cover those. But tonight, we're actually, we're not going to cover anything controversial tonight. We're going to lay the groundwork tonight of this doctrine and our basis for it. Because right now, we're going we're gonna to look at the Baptist idea of ecclesiology. Baptist polity, our church government. Um, we'll look at the, after that, we'll look at the, the confession position on it, a bit of the history of the particular Baptist, how they thought of it. And, uh, but that'll be, that'll be next week, at least. And there's not really debate on the stuff that we're talking about, at least not amongst us. There's people telling us that we're wrong. Uh, we're not, but they're going to tell us that we're wrong, and this is basically the historic position of Reformed Baptist and kind of more generally Baptist or Congregationalist as well. Um, they shouldn't have a whole lot of disagreement with us on this, so uh, we will eventually look at potential ways to practice associations uh, if we how it can be done, uh, how it, we want to do it, um, benefits of it, what the confession says about it. We'll talk about that eventually. 
um, si some of the liabilities or the cons that we might see in doing it. And uh, there we might have more discussion on that part, obviously. But we'll lay this groundwork first. This is stuff that we agree on. Uh, there's not really debate on this stuff amongst ourselves. So associationalism is part of the Baptist ecclesiastical doctrine, our ecclesiology, um, the doctrine of the church. This is, uh, Michael's going to talk about it more when we're uh, going through the confession, I'm sure. Kind of not, it, it overlaps a lot with our Sunday school study, but it's about the church. It's about polity or government in the church, not so much about how the local churches run. We're not going to get into that. We're not going to get into local church membership or uh, plurality of elders, parity of elders. We're not going to get into that sort of thing. This is about how individual local churches relate to other local churches. That's associationalism. And we could say it's a question of how the local church relates to the universal church, and that it is to a degree, uh, but more precisely stated, it's how we relate to other local churches. And those other local churches are part of the universal church, yes, but what we're doing is relating to other local churches. So specifically, like-minded local churches that are local in the sense of individual church congregations. We simply cannot relate in any meaningful way to the universal church in a significant way. Meaning it's just, we, we can't be harmonious in a way with many churches that we affirm are true churches, but they differ from us enough in doctrine and practice where it doesn't make any sense for us to associate with them. So there's plenty of true churches, and we're not denying that they're churches, but it doesn't make any sense for us to associate with them and try and practice that with our differences. And I would argue like the, we couldn't do it anyway, even if we wanted to. There's just too many, right? Um, we're not covering congregationalism either, as a side note. We're not talking about um, the idea of the church congregation itself taking votes and deciding things. Uh, that, that is about church polity within a local church itself, uh, regarding like the elders and the deacons and then the congregation. Michael will cover this when we're in the confession. Um, that, that is intra-church relations, uh, relations within our church walls. Uh, associationalism is about inter-church relations, one church to another, from one local church to another. So let's do a little bit of history uh, on this, and then we're going to get to the biblical background to it. Uh, getting to the historical Baptist position has not been easy, Historically, honestly, it's been part of Reformation. It's been part of Reform. And part of the Reformation, where the Reformed Baptist actually went to complete Reform, I would say, unlike our Presbyterian and our Reformed brothers who partially Reformed the doctrine of the Church, they partially Reformed the sacraments, they got better, but they did not fully Reform the doctrine of the Church. So we are not denominational. We're not part of a denomination. Baptist, Baptist is... Uh, there is not technically supposed to be a Baptist denomination. There's Baptist churches, but there's not a Baptist denomination. We don't believe there ought to exist any ecclesiastical authority between the local church and Christ. And we say it that way because we believe we are under authority, right? We're under the authority of Christ, the head of the church. We're under his authority, and between him and us at our local level, there should be no other authority. There's no denomination saying what we ought to do or have to do or anything like that. 
Christ is the head of the church. Next in line of authority are the local church elders, and that should be true of every single church. Therefore, there's no denominational body. There's not even a body of elders that are collected from a collection of churches that can rightly exercise authority over a local church. And that is our foundation. That's our foundation in our Baptist ecclesiology. Local churches are to be independent. And that is a minority position in church history. But I believe it's also the biblical model. Uh, the, the church went away from this. Oh, it started drifting in probably two and three hundreds. And then once it got embroiled with the state, it caused a huge mess. And we basically didn't get out from under that for well over a thousand years. And we're still paying a little bit of the repercussions of it. Historically, most churches have actually been Episcopalian. Not the denomination Episcopalian, but in their church government, they have been traditionally, or uh, if if you just took a survey and, and counted the noses, they would be Episcopalian. Episcopalian is uh, the idea of it's ruled from the top down, it, and it centers on bishops. Bishops is another word for elder or pastor or presbyter. Those are all the same word in the New Testament. Not the same literal word, but the same position, right? And uh, in Episcopalianism, a bishop and an elder and presbyter or whatever are differentiated, and it's a title for something above the elders. It also tends to have an emphasis on apostolic secession, a lot of churches have done that. The historical churches have done that. So from one bishop, got he succeeded from another bishop, from another bishop, from another bishop, all the way back to the apostles. And they claim apostolic succession in a literal sense, not a doctrinal sense, but a literal sense. And then what they do is they divide the churches into geographical districts or bishoprics or dioceses, if you've heard those terms. That's what it's talking about. It's Uh, It's talking about a section, a geographical section that has churches in it that is controlled by a bishop. It's a bishopric. It's his district. And then those bishops are in charge of every one of those local churches. And then local churches will still have elders or presbyters, but the bishop is in authority over those elders. So they're in subjection to him, submission to him. And you can see the hierarchical nature of that system. There's, there's going to be an archbishop. If you have a bunch of bishops and that's their system, then you're, you're going to wind up having an archbishop. Or worse, you could have a pope that's in charge of all these bishops, and you could put in additional levels within them. I mean, the, the Roman Catholic Church is really the uh, ultimate episcopal system, right? It's literally a hierarchy of steps up to the pope. The pope is technically the bishop of Rome, and the bishop of Rome is like the bishop of bishops. So... That's technically Episcopal. Presbyterianism, which we're probably more familiar with because we agree with a lot of Presbyterians with a lot of stuff, and Presbyterians can often have good churches. That is an improvement from the Episcopal form, for sure. Again, it's not supposed to be... And when I talk about Presbyterianism, again, I'm not talking about the denomination Presbyterian. I'm talking about the form of government because... They're named after their form of government. Presbyterianism is a form of church government. And um, they do not have bishops. And it likewise came out of the Reformation. And it began to develop in Calvin's Geneva for the most part. And Scott, the Scots took it and really developed it as well. And it remains, like paedobaptism, a partially reformed doctrine. There, it is genuine improvement from the medieval era. It's genuine improvement from the Episcopal system, but it's not as biblical as it ought to be. They partially reformed it, I would say. 
It's, it's not top-down. It's instead bottom-up. And instead of rule by bishops, it's rule by elders or groups of elders. Episcopalianism kind of narrows as it goes to the top, right? You get elders, bishops, archbishops, maybe an archbishop of archbishops. You know, there's some top bishop. Uh, so it's kind of like a pyramid shape. Uh, with um, Presbyterianism, it, it kind of broadens as it goes up. It's like an upside-down pyramid. So you have local church elders, and then it, it stacks on more and more levels of... It's like a series of ascending church courts. They call them church courts. There's the local church, which they'll call the session. So that's your local church elders, and they have teaching elders and... and, and oh. Ruling elders, thank you. Uh, teaching elders and ruling elders, so they differentiate between those. We don't do that. Uh, but they have both of those. Those make up the session. The sessions all come together. They make up the presbytery. All the presbyteries come together. They make up the synod. And then when all the synods are together, that's the general assembly. So they have these levels. Um, local church elders, uh, sorry, they're, yeah, that's the session. I said that groups of local churches, I said all that, okay. I basically just jumped ahead. Um, the GA then, of course, has authority over the synods, right? They rule over the synods. It's a higher authority than the synods. The synods rule over the presbyteries. The presbyteries rule over the sessions in the local churches. So basically a Presbyterian church can be directed or controlled from outside of itself. They're not independent. Um, that synod level, though, that might be superfluous and then it might not even exist depending on the size of the, the denomination, the Presbyterian denomination. Uh, they might collapse the synod and the presbytery into one level. So like the PCA and the OPC, Presbyterian Church of America, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, two of the ones that we're more familiar with, uh, they're, they're a little bit smaller than the main lines, but they, they, uh, they do that. They, get, they don't have a synod level. They just has, have presbytery. And then all the presbyteries make up the general assembly. Uh, idea is still the same, though. Same idea. So the decisions made by the lower, lower courts are subject to review and change by the higher courts. And it's, it's very much like the American justice system, right? There's lower courts, and then you can appeal to a higher court, and you can appeal to a higher court all the way up to the Supreme Court. And what the Supreme Court says goes. So it's sort of like that, in a sense. The Baptists and the Congregationalists reformed further from that church government to a biblical system of independency. Independency. In fact, honestly, the Presbyterians and the Reformed Baptists, the Congregationalists, sort of reformed together out of Episcopalianism. They just didn't go far enough when they did it. And we, they were still in a position of power, believed in state church, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but it was the Reformed Baptists and the Congregationalists that reformed all the way to independency. This system, which we adhere to, we are independent, this system says the local church is the only biblical authority, the only structure for biblical authority instituted by God. So there's nobody, there's no person and there's no body of churches no figure other than christ that is above each local church and some will say though well uh don't we see rule from one church to another in the new testament doesn't that sort of look more like the presbyterian system when we read in the new testament where one church sort of exercises influence or or authority over another and they'll, they'll bring up the jerusalem council in acts 15 
And I think they flatten out that reading a little bit when they do that. But that, that was a body of church leaders, but it was elders and apostles. And they gathered to make decisions that were essentially authoritative to outside churches. And we'll talk about that more. But yes, but it was not an authority merely over outside churches. It was all churches. It's not just what they said went because they still had living apostles. So if you have living apostles, you go to the apostles because apostles are above elders in terms of the local church. They just died out eventually. They, they were in the apostolic era. And apostolic leadership was still literally being practiced. They had the authority given to them by Christ to establish and run the church. Right? If Peter were here, if Peter and Paul were here, I would hope you understand that they have authority over us. Right? You, they would trump whatever we say. And that was what was going on in the very first century. We're still under that same authority, though. Don't get me wrong. It's not like they're gone, and therefore their authority is gone. No, their authority remains, but all the apostolic authority that we need is collected in Scripture, right? And now the Scripture is the ruling authority for our churches. It has the authority of Christ. Therefore, we are under apostolic authority in the sense that we are bounded by scripture. We can only do what it says that we can do, and we can't do the things it says we can't do. Scripture is our authority. During that first century period, though, they're in that period of inscripturation. They don't have the whole New Testament yet. They don't have complete New Testaments, and that's why we would expect them to see, we expect what we see in Jerusalem with that council where they go to the apostles and ask. They don't ask for a ruling, but they want to bring up a, a subject. And so, of course, it's going to look a little bit more like Presbyterianism in that period. There's living apostles. We are seeing apostolic rule in the church the way that we see the Bible rule the church now. We are seeing the, the apostles rule the church the way that we see the Bible rule the church now. It's a little bit wordier than I wanted it to be. Uh, anyway, it's like we have living apostles, except everything that we need to know from them is in the Bible. Therefore, that's our apostolic rule. So, with the authority of Scripture in place, local churches are now to relate one to another, when possible, in a cooperating way. And it's not top-down, it's not bottom-up, it's reciprocating or side-to-side -side cooperation, if that makes sense. So the local church remains independent. We are independent from any extra-ecclesial authority structure. Nobody can tell us what to do or how to do it other than Scripture. There's no authority structure above us. It is independent of external control, and it cannot and it must not be subordinate to a higher central government in terms of church government. Obviously, local government, their uh, secular government, they have no say, but um, we are not supposed to subordinate ourselves to any other higher level or church court or anything. It, we remain in subjection to Christ and apostolic authority by being in subjection to Scripture. That's how the church ought to operate. And that both restricts our authority as a church, and it empowers our authority in the local church, both. Local churches can have a corresponding system where the authority of each local church is recognized, respected, and unable to be infringed upon. When each church recognizes this principle of independence, then you can work together in recognition of, like, we're not taking authority over your church. We have no say over your church. But we can work together 
as brothers, and when there's recognition of that fact of the independency, then it can happen because nobody's trying to step up and take over any other kind of church or anything like that. So we're not going to do a full defense or biblical justification of independency. I'm just laying that out. We're just, we're just laying this groundwork for our target topic. But when it comes to the topic of associationalism, it is important to note that independency does not mean isolationism. There is meant to be mutual action, support, and assistance amongst the churches. And when that takes place, each local church that does it, whenever they're doing that together, they have equal status, they have equal rights, because they each recognize their own independence. I've seen the verbiage used of independency and interdependency. I think that's good. That's accurate. Those are, those are good labels for what I think we see in the Bible. Those are, I think that's the biblical position. Independency in the local church and interdependency among local churches. They're not mutually extensive ideas, mutually exclusive ideas to say that we're both independent and interdependent. So, obviously the question is going to be, where is this biblically justified? Where are we getting this? And some may claim the Bible never explicitly directs churches to meet together or work together, which is technically true. That's right. It doesn't. We don't have a verse. I mean, if it was that simple of just going like, look, here it says to do that, then we'd do that and this would be over. Uh, It never explicitly directs believers to formally join membership in a local church either. Yet, we still acknowledge that that is the biblical model and that is the doctrine we all we must follow. That is what ought to be done. We believe Christians ought to join local churches as members. Much of what we're told to do in the local church cannot functionally be done without a formal membership. So when it says to do all the things that a local church is meant to do, there's no way that we can do them in a meaningful way or in any sort of authoritative way unless there is church membership. So church membership is necessarily contained in Scripture. That's the way our, our, our confession talks about uh, doctrines that aren't explicit. It says it's necessarily contained. And we say church membership is necessarily contained in Scripture because of that. The apostles clearly take it for granted. They just assume it. Christians are going to be members of local churches, and that's how we see it function. This is the same general argument that Reformed Baptists have made for churches, what they call holding communion together. That's how our confession talks about it. Or to have some sort of structural bond between individual churches. We don't see it commanded, per se. We just see it function that way. We observe the churches functioning in this manner. And that's basically the same idea that we see with local church membership. We see first century churches have a surprisingly high level of communication between them in spite of any sort of technological limitations. They still constantly communicate. They kept one another informed of their activities, of their needs. They sent messengers between them as representatives to the church, other churches. They clearly knew each other well enough to send personal greetings to one another through those messengers. Like when you go there, give my greetings from so-and-so or whatever. That example alone rules out any sort of isolationism. If you just, I mean, we read these epistles and you see these greetings and it's like, why? Okay, great. You know, they don't get a whole lot of attention because we don't know who these people are. It's the fact that the greetings are being given though. That, That informs us on the level of relationship. If you go through and just read them, I mean, there's named individuals sending greetings regular, regularly to 
other people at other churches. I mean, in Romans, we see it. Uh, most of the epistles carry this. After Paul gives his reading, greetings in Romans, he tells them the other churches greet them too. So he gives greetings from other churches. We read in verse uh, 22 and 23, I believe this is chapter 16, says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, so that's Paul's amanuensis, he wrote the letter, says, I greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me, and the whole church greets you. So that's the guy that owned the house where the church met. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Cordus, the brother. So individual greetings from individual people, right? We see Epaphroditus being, as sent, uh, being sent as a messenger back and forth in Philippians 2. If you look at verses 25 through 30, uh, there's concern by one of the churches about his health. They had heard about his health and were concerned about it. And so Epaphroditus was sent back and forth as a messenger. Uh, and then listen to the close relationship shared between the churches at Colossae and Laodicea and likely the church in Heropolis as well. These were all churches that were together in the Lycus Valley. They kind of make a triangle, these three churches. But Paul writes to them collectively. He says, that, he says, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. That's, that might be the Heropolis church. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So like interchange, interact and interchange these letters and read them. So those churches were something like 10 miles apart, probably. Maybe half a day's journey back then. Not sure how, I mean, 10 miles in a day would probably wear you out. It's not, you're not going to go much farther than that. Uh, and they clearly associated together fairly closely because they have that kind of interaction where he would be like, yeah, I wrote letters, go exchange them, and then give greetings to each other as well. Uh, they send you greetings. and So we see as well near constant cooperation from the churches together in missions and church planting. I mean, that's what the book of Acts is. It's essentially a giant missions and church planting project by all these churches together. And I'm going to read multiple passages here just so that I, I, I want us to hear from the Bible itself, how they talk about it. Uh, this is Acts 4. They passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. From there, they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the local church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So informing them of all the action that's going on at all these churches. Acts 15. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. This is in Antioch. This is what happened. They have this men, these men come down from Judea. They began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here's some false teaching coming to the church. And they're like, okay, we need to deal with this. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So the churches in Antioch send Paul and Barnabas and a group of others as messengers, go to the church in Jerusalem, talk to the other apostles, let's get this dealt with, right? This is the Jerusalem council in, uh, in Acts 15. Uh, Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversions of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. So again, they visit churches on the way, keep them informed of everything that's going on. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. 
So again, in, in Jerusalem, you have a local church, or churches, uh, sounds like more like a local church. It's got elders, but there's also apostles there, and they all met together with these messengers. Acts 21, we'll come back to Acts 15, by the way. Acts 21, after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly, and the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So it's not just James, it's the elders, all the elders are present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So he's informing the church in Jerusalem about all this work that's going on. And all these other churches that he goes to also support him in that work. 1 Corinthians 16. The churches of Asia greet you. The churches of Asia are sending their greetings. Groups of churches. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord. So Aquila and Priscilla knew the Corinthian church and they send greetings with the churches in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Philippians 4. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So um, there's personal relations. This people in Caesar's household, for some reason, knew the Philippians a little bit better. They had some sort of relationship there. Colossians 4. This is a little bit longer, but this is an important passage too. As to all my affairs, Tychius, our beloved brethren and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. So he's going to send back Tychius as a messenger with information. For I have sent him to you for this purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage you or encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brethren, who is, done, who is one of your number. So Onesimus had been sent to work or where Paul was, and now he's sending Onesimus and Tychius back to Colossae as messengers. They will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas's cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. So those are the Jewish ones. And they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings. So that's another one that had come from Colossae and is now with Paul always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you, for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. Again, those churches, Colossae, Laodicea, and Heropolis, they're this very close group of churches. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. So that's really interesting. The, the Laodicea, Heropolis, and Colossae clearly had some sort of they, they, they were grouped together, they interacted together, they communicated as a group when Paul communicates to them. Hebrews 13, greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. 1 Peter 5.13, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. And obviously we can go on and on with the greetings. Basically pick out any epistle and you'll find personal greetings. And they're very informative. Not in the sense of like, just in laying the groundwork and giving you a sketch of the interrelation between the people in the churches and how much they interacted. And we could say these passages were just greetings and it's just like them saying hi to each other, but it's more than that. These people were from different places in an age where travel and communication was far more difficult than it is for us today. And yet, 
they clearly had this level of meaningful relationship and interaction that's completely diminished if we think of their greetings as the equivalent of merely saying hi to each other. Don't, don't, don't look at it as that simple. Look at, look at what's behind it. It's not the greeting itself that's so telling. It's the substance of the relationship and the time and the effort that's behind it that had to exist. The time and effort in the relationship that had to exist for those greetings to even, for them to take the time and the ink and the paper to do that. That's the substance that is meaningful. I mean, can you imagine this level of interaction and communication with other churches, other believers, right? And this is, it's a level that it's hard to replicate without a pretty personal relationship is the point without some sort of interdependence between churches. You're not going to write and speak to each other in these ways because you have to know a lot about each other and interact regularly for the, to mean something or for it to be like an appropriate thing to do in a relationship. You don't walk up to the Christians that you hear about and just start telling them about the stuff going on in your church and the hardship and the things you're thinking about and maybe this doctrinal thing that came in. Oh, we have these false teachers that showed up. Uh, that doesn't happen unless... There's a meaningful relationship there. Now, should we expect to replicate identical scenarios as the apostolic era in our own day? No, I don't think so. I'm not, I wouldn't make that argument. But the nearness, the brotherhood, the partnerships, and the obvious associating together in some form and fashion, that is something that I think we ought to strive for. I think it still sets a model for what the church ought to be doing. Not like we need to look exactly like the apostolic era. That's, I think, untenable. Uh, But I believe that is the heart of the Baptist position of interdependence. That sort of relationship that we see between them, the partnerships, that's the idea of interdependence. While maintaining independence, we still have an interdependence. We also see churches in regions get grouped together or undertake joint action or have joint representation. We see that as well. So there's a group of churches in Galatia, and Paul writes to them all at once. He writes to this association of churches, uh, to the churches in Galatia, he says. So he's writing to all of them. We see him reference a group of churches in Judea as well, which is not surprising. That's sort of like where they came out of. That's the hub of the wheel with all the spokes, right? There's going to be a group of churches there. Uh, And he said these churches in Judea, they hadn't seen him yet. And he was just pointing that out. There's a group of churches that had not yet met him. Uh, We read of him speaking of the grace of God to the group of churches in Macedonia and how they look up to take a collection. They took a collection amongst this group of churches to support these other saints that Paul told them about. So there's some group of churches working together to support this work. And of course, we see John directing or directed to write a singular letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor. There's seven churches that are kind of in a line of sorts, not a straight line, but they're, they're, they're grouped. And he, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So there's a group of these churches that they get written to all at once. Peter addressed his first epistle to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to groups in these regions. 
And we see churches give mutual support through financing and sending gospel workers, gospel helpers. We see that happening over and over and over. In Acts 11, when persecution forced the displacement of the Christians out of Jerusalem, and they went out and they started planting churches, then the church in Jerusalem sent, when they find out about this, when when churches start popping up, they send Barnabas to them in Antioch. And he's not going there as an authority saying, all right, hey, you're in subjection to this church in Jerusalem. No, they're sending him as a a co-laborer to go encourage them and bring reports from Jerusalem and reports from Antioch back. And that's exactly what happens. They also had a prophet named Agabus came down, started teaching, and he taught them as well. And when there was a famine in in Judea amongst those churches, they sent messengers back to them with money from these other churches. They sent money to the uh, saints. They sent it to the elders of those churches. They sent messengers with money, go help these saints, and they, they go and they send it to the elders. That sort of thing only happens where there's ongoing communication, relationship, trust, and cooperation. I mean, we would be very careful about doing that sort of thing, as we rightfully should. We don't just throw money around. We do it when we have relationship with whoever it is we're working with, and that is what we see happening there. In Acts 15, we see the church in Jerusalem send Paul, Barnabas, Judas, and Silas with a letter to the congregation in Antioch. And then Judas and Silas preached at that church. And it says they preached a lengthy sermon, by the way. So apparently that's an apostolic practice. We're gonna, we'll start making ours a little bit longer. Then Antioch uh, sent that church, sent uh, some of them back to Jerusalem with reports. In Acts 21, we see churches in various cities hosting Paul as well as Agabus and the prophet, or Agabus the prophet from Judea. In Romans 16, we see Paul sending Phoebe from the church in Sincrea as a helper for the church in Rome. And he asks them to support her. So he's asking them, take care of this girl. And she has helped other churches. She's from Sincrea. Now I'm sending her to you. So these churches are working together, sending their people. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul gives instructions for the church to receive and then send Timothy on, as well as news on Apollos and an upcoming visit from him. So he's, he, not only is he <clears throat> he's saying, Timothy's coming, uh, you know, take care of him, send him, or receive him, take care of him, then send him on his way, and then uh, expect Apollos. And he gives them an update on Apollos too. Uh, this, this is him in 2 Corinthians 16. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus, For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. So Titus took it on himself from his church to go. It's not like he's being directed from the apostles. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel have spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches. The churches are appointing someone to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of God himself and show our readiness. Groups of local churches working together to appoint someone to accompany Paul. They, they, they have to have a level of cooperation for that to happen. There's, there's relationship there. Uh, Philippians 1, Paul thanks God for, his, for their church's participation in the gospel work, and then he brings it up again in Philippians 4 about their giving and their receiving. He's talking about them giving money to other saints. Uh, other, other churches that needed it. 
because uh, they heard there was trouble because they received reports of hardship and they took up a collection and sent it on, on to them. Uh, third John, beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren and especially when they are strangers and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God for they went out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Again, directing the churches to work together to support these, these guys. Multiple churches supporting these missions and church planting. So there's a level of cooperation that we ought not to minimize merely because there were apostles around. The cooperation was not just because of the apostles. There were regular collections and mutual financial support, and it's not just because of the apostles. It's going to look a little different because it's an apostolic era, but the, the, the way they work together or the fact that they do and the level of interaction is what we're interested in. 1 Corinthians 16 again. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so do you also. He's saying, I said this to Galatia, you, I'm saying the same thing. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collection be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So you, church, appoint someone to go with my letters and that collection that you take up and they'll go to, we'll send them to Jerusalem. The church will send them. And it is fitting for me to go also and they will go with me. So he's telling the church to appoint people. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, those two chapters together, Paul makes mention of the Macedonian churches taking up a collection for other Christians. He talks about it pretty extensively, or at least the, the idea of giving and supporting. Romans 15, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So these other churches are helping take care of the Christians in Jerusalem that are poor. I think, I think those, that Jerusalem church probably had the highest level of pressure and potential persecution. It eventually spread elsewhere, but in, uh, in Jerusalem they probably had it the highest level, and they, they got taken care of by other churches. And of course, let's not overlook the, the theological and doctrinal questions that they worked together on in Acts 15. That's a significant thing. It was the brethren in Antioch that had some false teachers show up. So they were the ones that sent Paul and Barnabas, and they sent a few others with him to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders. It's not just like they're looking for apostolic authority to come and rule on this. They're sending them to the apostles and the elders, the local church there, to get feedback and information from them. And the elders joined in the discussion with the apostles that we see in Acts 15. And they all came to that conclusion and then they wrote a letter and they sent a delegation back to Antioch. It's very uh, informing stuff that these churches work together on a theological question, a doctrinal question. So they all work together in, at that level as well. The frequency of communication and cooperation and interaction and all that sort of thing, that's what is so striking about reading this. They consider themselves mutually accountable to one another. They join together in labors and missions and church planning and financial relief, all sorts of stuff. They're interested enough in one another to keep each other informed of their activities for mutual encouragement and praise to God. Praise God for these things that he's doing here. This is what we're seeing amongst the Gentiles. Praise God and worship him for it. So their, their worship is actually informed by the reports going on in these churches. 
So then God is thanked and he is praised in all the churches when they receive news of what he's done in other places. Remember, I'll give you an example of this. Remember when Sovereign Grace, so they invited me to do that conference. I went down there, I met their church. um, And then, I don't know when it was, several months later, they had sent a report to us, just communication to us of like, we saw a huge influx. We had like 40 plus visitors today. We're maxing out our sanctuary. And I, I, I think we were driving to Illinois. We were driving back home. And I sent a report back to you guys telling you about the good news of this church that we began at least some level of relationship with, right? That's the sort of thing that they did all the time. They sent messengers and letters to tell each other about these sort of things. They, they dealt with controversy together, even. This level of commitment to one another is honestly, it is just now being recovered in our day, at least the particulars of sort of how they, they did it. I mean, like I said, we had over a thousand years of episcopacy dominating the church, and it takes time for these things to be recovered when they've been buried for so long. And it very, do, it very much does go against the American mindset of complete autonomy. And that can be hard for us, and I will be the first to admit that this is not natural for me. The, the types of relationship that we have, even as local church members, the way that we are involved in one another's lives, and each other's business. That's not natural to me. I don't know how much it is natural to you. I don't like people in my business. I don't want to be in other people's business. I have a strand of radical independency in me, I think, that I have to basically contain because it's not justified biblically. I would not be a good church member if I practiced how I felt about interacting with others, if that makes sense. So there's no way to read the book of Acts and all those greetings and all the mentions of these other churches and how they interact. It's impossible to see that, read all that and not see a robust interdependence among the early churches. In addition, churches had to likewise cooperate. Think about this. Think about how much they had to cooperate together for the copying of scripture, the, manu- the, the manuscripts themselves. They had, there had to be a clear level of trust and cooperation needed for that, especially if they're in a place or a position where they can get in trouble for having those scriptures. So <clears throat> they would have uh, those messengers, when they go to another church, they would be copying down the letters they received from Paul and that sort of thing. And then they'd go back to their church and they hey, we have another letter from Paul. He's talking to the, Coloss- uh, the Colossian church here, but, uh, you know, There's still going to be principles that apply to us. And that sort of thing happened. The the spread of scripture is very much dependent on the association of these churches with one another. The fact is that the apostles assumed and took it for granted that local churches would associate together, that they would work together, that they would care for one another, that they would keep one another accountable, that they would stay in each other's business, but all in an unauthoritarian way. There's no authoritative element to these practices. We just see them cooperating side by side, arm in arm, reciprocal cooperation. There's no superstructure set up. There's there's nothing to direct these churches. And the apostles didn't set up anything like that. But they did establish a pattern of extensive networking. And so what we do is we we read the New Testament and we see how that networking functioned. And that's where we get these ideas. In other words, the New Testament doesn't show the creation of associations of churches. What it shows is the existence and the function 
of the associations of churches. And like I said, it cannot look exactly the same now as it did in the apostolic era. I'm not going to, I don't think anybody can make that argument. There's too much error that has been formally confessed. How do you associate with a church that you know teaches something incorrectly, right? And our differences are significant enough where we cannot maintain a functioning peace if we try to force an an exhaustive practice of association. If we try to associate with the Presbyterian church, how do you in good conscience not try to teach them the correct doctrine of baptism? If your brother is in error, you want to correct their error. So to maintain peace, it doesn't make any sense for us to associate with them, is my argument. And I would also say that as the universal church is also so large at this point, that doing so anyway would be so encumbering that it's not even feasible. You cannot associate with every true church. It's impossible. There's too many of them. That's great. It's good that there's so many churches that we can't associate with all of them. We can't associate with every true church because there's too many and they've been spread too far and we don't even all speak the same languages, obviously. So our associationalism now basically needs to be regional or local. That, that's what makes sense with like-minded churches of the same doctrine and practice. To maintain peace, for, for it to function as what we see in the New Testament, that's how it ought to be done. The communication has to be regular. The interaction has to be regular. And that means in person sometimes. Uh, but it has to be local enough where we can actually interact at that level. Or regional, whatever, whatever the case may be. That is the groundwork that we need in place before we look at the details of how we might practice associationalism ourselves. So it's not saying necessarily, therefore, we must do X, Y, and Z. Nobody's making that argument yet. What we're saying is, this is how we see him function in the New Testament. That's a model for us to mimic, just the same way we see local church membership modeled. But next time, we'll look at how the confession talks about the idea, which, by the way, our confession was published by an association of churches. That's who published it. And we're also going to talk about how associationalism has been practiced in history, uh, particularly amongst the Baptists, but even more broadly, uh, even the Congregationalists, if they sort of had different ideas. And, 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 and then eventually, if it takes a third lesson or if we get to it, we'll talk about the benefits, the pros, the cons, uh, the dangers, the good things, stuff like that. And that's where we can have more discussion. But all this groundwork that we just laid, everybody's in agreement amongst the Reformed Baptists on that. What that looks like, that, that leads to more discussion. So we will cover that next time. Uh, it wasn't too long, I guess. Any questions on that stuff before we close? Okay, good deal. Let's pray quick and then uh, sing a song. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have made us a local church. We're thankful that we have Christ as our head and we seek to honor him above all things. We thank you for the biblical model that we have for our ecclesiology and for the work the apostles did in spreading the gospel spreading the church, sending one another, and interacting. We pray for guidance as we consider this topic. We pray for more like-minded churches to be raised up locally and regionally around us so there would be more to associate with in various ways, Lord. So we pray for the spread of good confessional Reformed Baptist churches. And wherever we are in air, Lord, we pray that you would reform us all the way to Scripture. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you for Christ that unites us. We thank you for a gospel that is worthy of proclamation 
and for you being a God worthy of worship. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.